Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Full Change with Tom Laidlaw. Hey, here we go, Tom. So we got a got an interesting one today. We got a you guys weren't teammates; you just missed each other in L.A. But this next guest is uh, very influential to you. Yes. And the number three fifty three. We got Jim Thompson on today. All right, the great Jimmy Thompson. What's happening, brother? Not much, Tom. Great to be on again. So if anybody watches me or follows me on Facebook and Instagram, uh, well, it's the Instagram where I posted three fifty three. I was always getting up early and doing a post at that time, some motivational video, but it was around like 350 or 355. It's kind of random. The trailer that you grew up in, the trailer park, the number on it was 353. So you asked if I could uh, do it 353 every morning. And uh, I tell you, it's really made a difference in my life. I know it sounds like a small thing, but I'm really learning more and more about how important discipline is in your life. And you, by me adding that for you, it actually has helped me more. So I want to thank you for that. Well, and I thank you too, because you know, I like it every time I see it <clears throat> and it inspires me because, you know, it's, it's dear to me. It was my mountain's mobile home. And so every day I get to see it, it gives me a good jolt. That's good. That's perfect. That works out that way. All right. So let's talk about your playing career. Yeah. So I was just, we actually were together in training camp that I didn't, uh, that was the year I retired and you were coming in. So we got to chat a few times. So you grew up in Edmonton. Is that where you grew up? Yeah, Edmonton, and uh, moved to when I was 15, turning 16, to Toronto to play junior hockey there. That's right, too. So were you, so you, your play career, may have followed you, you were a pretty tough guy. Were you, like, as a goal scorer when you were a kid? <clears throat> I was, Tommy. I, I scored um, just under 70 goals my last year of minor hockey. Um, you know, in the American Hockey League, I had was on a 50-goal pace one year, 24 the, another year. And you know what it's like in the American Hockey League. It's not easy to score there. So I had that scoring ability, but I always thank my brothers uh, who are pretty tough dudes, bikers that, you know, taught me, sit at the back of the room, make sure you see everything and always protect your family. Well, a hockey team like you, um, you know, you protected your teammates and I hated fighting. I don't like to use the word hate. I was not a fighter. I had these protective instincts and it started in junior B and carried on to the OHL and, uh, you know, I didn't enjoy hockey after, you know, basically junior in a sense, because, you know, every night you go to bed and get up, there's a chance you're bare knuckle fighting a guy like Dave Brown, Marty McSorda, these guys, Probert back in our day. And it wasn't a lot of fun for me, but it was my dream. And I, sure. you know, I did it for 10 years. Yeah. Again, Marty, I've talked about uh, Marty McSorley too, where he, uh, he first came in the league. And I see this as a total compliment to him. He couldn't play in the beer league when he first started. He just couldn't skate, but. He knew he had to fight every night, and he did that to stay. Yeah. And then he made himself into a player. So you, you really have to admire that. So, so where'd you play your junior Vita? Uh Devin. It was called Devin Mustangs. Uh, actually, sorry, that was the midget team. Devin Drillers and Devin Alberta. Oh. And what's funny is uh, I was 14, scoring goals in midget. So they called me up, 
And ironically, I got into a fight with a 20-year-old. I'll never forget a guy with the big beard, right? You know, I'm in warm-up, a young kid skating around going like this, this is... Different. So you're you're 14 years old and you're fighting a 20 Wow, nice criminal. So, well, it, what happened was I, I scored and I got cross-checked from behind. And as I was getting up, this big dude was standing over me and he's like, let's go. Well, you know, you know, you, you know what it's like. You just don't even think. Yeah. And I caught him. And almost one of the thing my other brothers taught me was hit first. <laughs> so I just I just took a, a cowboy punch at this guy and caught him right on the chin and knocked him down and he was down for a few few seconds and and that's where it all started because now in the junior B loop, which is a tough loop out west, they're talking about this fourteen year old in Devon knocked one of the tough guys in the league out. So I didn't ask for it, Tommy, but that's where it started. Right. So you move off from junior B. Where's your where where'd you play major junior? So I started um, with the Toronto Marlboros of the OHL. I moved with my uncle and aunt. I, w I was, uh, as we get into my my other part of my life, so I, I started drinking and smoking dope when I was 12, growing up in the trailer park. So just to kind of speed this up. So at 14, my dad saw where I was going in life. You know, I had the long hair and hanging out in cars and parks and not a lot to do in the trailer park. I always say this. If you watch the trailer park, boys, it's kind of how we yeah. grew up. Okay. So anyways, he brought me down to Markham to meet my uh, uncle and aunt. My uncle was a 25-year um, recovering alcoholic. And he straightened my life out and got me a tryout with the Toronto Marlboros. And I ended up playing, starting there, going to the Markham Waxers uh, in the Junior A loop. And then back with the Marlies the rest of my junior career. Right. Well, pretty cool. So then you... That's where you played. You were drafted out of the Marlies? Is that where you drafted? Yeah, to Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah. What round did you go in? Ninth round. Oh, okay. Now, were, were you at the draft? No, 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 no. I was in my mom's trailer. And what's funny is, back then, TSN covered the first three rounds. So we had a draft party because my agent said, you know what? Maybe third to sixth round. Well, I figure I'm getting drafted. There was 15 rounds back then. No, 12 rounds, sorry. 12 rounds. So the party had all come and gone. It was nine o'clock at night. And it was just my best friend, my mom and I left in the trailer. And uh, about 9.15, Jack, the late Jack Button called me from Washington and said, we selected in the ninth round. So it was a great, great night for me. Yeah. That's for me, I was drafted. I was cleaning the shit out of the horse stalls in the horse breeding mm -hmm. farm in Guelph, Ontario. Yeah, they called me. Obviously, no cell phones back then. They called my father at uh, our farm. And I was working at another farm. So he called. they called me up to the house. My father says, oh, you drafted by the New York Rangers. I said, what do I do now? He says, get back out there and finish getting the shit out of <laughs> You know, it's funny. One of the one of the things I remember about you, um, you sat at the front of the bus. We were, we were traveling in training camp. And you were so kind. Like, you know, I'm a young kid and you're the veteran and you had a bad back. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And I just remember your kindness and your humor. And I said, this guy's really cool because you just you just treated everybody the same. It didn't matter if it was Gretzky or me. And that that's something that why you played a long time. And I've talked to other of your some of your other teammates, and you know your your uh, kindness and your um, who you are is why you are you who you are today. Well, that's very sweet. That means a lot to me. Did you guys fight each other in camp then after that? <laughs> no, I saw oh, you did. I saw you were. You, you weren't in camp, if you remember, because your back was bad. Yeah, well, I think I was there, and they were trying to rehab it, and it, it was just clear it wasn't going to rehab. And that's uh, and it's really funny to tell that story, too, because I remember how I felt. Like, I knew that my career was ending, but I was so like naive for where it was. I remember Rogi Vashaw called me up at the Great Western Forum up to his office, 
and it was right after training camp was done. I tried to come back. It didn't work. And he said, Tom, your career is over with. And man, that was the weirdest feeling. Like I remember walking up that ramp, you know, the ramp going out of the great Western forum and thinking to myself like that whole life I'd been on a team some point. And now all of a sudden it was, I was actually scared. It's like, you know, what is going to happen? But, um, just like survivor. Yeah. You're off the Island. Yeah. (laughs) Very true. Okay. So I went through, I just quickly, I went through it in Anaheim with two shoulder operation. And after my second operation, the doctor says, nothing more I can do for you. He goes, you know, this is probably it. And I went home and same thing, lost, lost in space. Right. Yeah. Look, it's a weird feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Growing, yeah, you're a grown man too. We talked to this before, you know, I, I, I can't remember on a show or just a, a personal conversation, but you talked about how this, we're so proud to be played in the NHL. It's fantastic. It's a dream come true. But it was sometimes, some way where you think about your life kind of sets you back in your life, right? Because you spend probably 10 years of pro hockey where you live in this life that is not the real world at all. And we don't understand that when we're in it. Then after we get done, we realize, wow, it's not the way the world works. No. And you, as you know, we're, everything is done for us. And, um, you know, with, with, you know, you and I are very blessed that we came out of it, survived it, are living a, a good, healthy life. And sadly, a lot of our alumni are, are struggling because what happens is you don't get an education. And if you don't find your way, Tommy, and, and, you know, like myself got into drugs and alcohol, you sink really quick, you know, and there's a lot of guys struggling out there because they didn't find their way because we were in this bubble for 10 to whatever years that you're in it, right? From junior yeah. hockey on. Very true. Um, okay. So you get drafted by Washington Capitals. So do you do American Hockey League for a while first? Where'd you go? Yeah. Yeah. Binghamton, New York. Um, so I played for the Binghamton Whalers for the first two years. Got called up um, uh, 10 games with Washington. Got sent back down. I hurt my uh, my severed a tendon in my knuckle in a fight against Montreal. Hockey Day in Canada. Parents watching. Big deal. And yeah. Who'd you fight? Uh, Mike Waller. <clears throat> a defenseman. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Good player. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He could fight. So anyway... Um, and then uh, Brian Murray said to me, I had a 195 penalty minutes as a rookie, which, you know, in the American Hockey League, I'm this young kid and, and you would know this. And he's, Brian Murray said to me at the end of the year meeting, he goes, if you're going to play in our, on our team in our league, you're going to fight more. And I thought I had done enough to right. make a statement because right. I fought a lot of tough guys, you know, in the American Hockey League, Bennett Wall, Val James, these guys, there was a lot of tough guys down there. And, I said, fight more. So the next year, which again, I told you at the start of this podcast, I, I did not like fighting. I had 41 fights in 57 games, 360 minutes, led the league in penalty minutes. The next year made the caps. But it's it's something that, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a tough, tough mental year for me because I'm like, if I want to live out my dream, they're asking, you got to do it, uh, right? Geez, I remember going through that too, where I came in and I was you know, a pretty good scrapper, but like, I was like you, like every night you're going like, you've got to fight Bob Nystrom and Clark Gillies, Paul Holmgren, Ben Wilson, you know, and you think, okay, I proved I could fight, but do I want to do it every night like that? So I remember when I got in the age of business, uh, Warren Reichel, who was a teammate of yours, correct? Yeah, you played with Warren. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. he was one of my first clients I got and he was in the minors and I remember I had to say to him, I said, Bunny, listen, I, I hate to say this to you because it's the most, it's ter- worst job in the league. But if you're going to play the National Hockey League, you need to fight everybody. And uh, he was happy I told him, but man, I felt bad saying it to him because I knew how tough the job it was. Oh, it's awful. 
you know, yeah. sleepless nights and and it created a lot of my you know numbing up the fear because you know this tommy and i've i've watched your fight tapes and how many you know these big dudes that you had to go through and it's not easy going to bed sleeping knowing that you're going into detroit with probert and kosher there and grimson and peluso in uh in freaking Chicago, and then you go over to St. Louis, and it's twist and chase, or it's just a circle for guy. You know, the goal scorers go to bed, they sleep peacefully, or the penalty killers. For you and me, it was difficult mentally. It killed me. Killed. Me. So now, were you drinking at this time? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah, I was. I was. I was drinking, and here's you know you're you're on the road. A bottle of wine turned into two bottle of wines. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, pumping the coffee and Sudafed the next day to get, you know, yourself pumped up. And yeah, I was, I was, I was a basket case because I wasn't built for that. I was tough, right. but I wasn't, I wasn't, um, you know, to go into Philly, like when I was in Washington, I had to fight Nate Brown twice. Well, that's, that's, you know, like I grabbed on, I made sure I tied up his left. But one of my points is I, you said it at the start, I was his goal scorer. Yeah. Right. And the only way I was going to live out my dream was to, Put the Jofa on, the Vaseline on the face, all that game that we played. Right. And I'm I would look in the mirror going, Wow. But I it was just it was it was a, you know, it was negative for me. Right. How many years did you spend in Washington? Uh just over two. Okay. Just that was the third year I got traded to Hartford at the deadline. And then um from Hartford to New Jersey. And then I signed as a free agent in LA and then um LA and then Anaheim, oh, B Ottawa. I played in Ottawa bed. I mean, the only player, just so I don't know if you remember this, the only player in the history of the NHL to go in three expansion drafts. Oh, were you really? Wow. There you go. Yeah. You're famous. You're famous. Minnesota, Ottawa, and Anaheim. So you had the one stop in LA. Did you go back to LA? During time. So I, what happened was I was with LA. Right. I got picked up by Minnesota when, remember San Jose and Minnesota split? Yeah. So then at the entry draft, I was in the same trailer watching with my ex-wife. And remember Jim Johnson, the defenseman? Yep, sure do. Okay, so L.A. makes a trade with Minnesota. And the guy said Jim Johnson on TV. I'm like, why couldn't it have been Jim Thompson, right, going to L.A.? Because oh, okay. I got picked by many in the Spanish draft. So anyways, the phone rang, and sure enough, uh, Jack Button says, welcome back. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was me. And then uh, the following year, I got picked up by Ottawa. At the uh, Christmas deadline where you can't uh, freeze, I right. got traded back to the Kings uh, uh, again. And then the final time was Anaheim, and that's where I got Okay. And Wayne Gretzky really liked you a lot, didn't he? He wanted you on the team. He did. So, you know, when I got the second trade, I was in the hotel, and Bruce McDowell, our owner, came up to me. He goes, you know, Wayne made this trade. And they traded a good player for me, Bob Kudowski, who was a 20-goal yeah. scorer. Yeah, he's good. And it was, you know, I was good in the dressing room, a lot like yourself. I was a fun guy, kept people loose, and obviously I had their back. So I think in a, in a way you and I were very similar yeah. of how our personalities were with our teammates and made sure that yeah. uh, nobody took advantage of them. It's part of who we were, right? It's just uh, you don't really plan on being that. It's funny, you mentioned Bruce McNall. was a great guy he was, and everybody doesn't know. He went to prison for a couple of years for bank fraud, and, but tremendous guy. He treated us fantastic. So we were on the road. And he would come to me uh, after the game, give me like $2,000 of cash. and said, Tommy, take all the guys out for beers. And it was actually, and back in those days, that was part of the culture too, where, you know, Gretz was, uh, Gretz is a great hockey, a great athlete, but he also powered some pretty good beers too. He was, he liked yeah. having the beers. <laughs> He's a good guy. He was a team guy too. That was funny.
you said something that from a fan's perspective, like you said, Wayne Gretzky made the trade, or at least Bruce yeah. McCall told you that's incredible because people don't realize that. Well, it was, it was, and and I was like, wow, and you know, Wayne Wayne saw my value in the dressing room. Sure. He saw. You know, obviously, you know, there's Marty and Jay Miller there, but, you know, you're going into Calgary. They had a tough team. There's some of these teams that you needed some extra toughness, so that helped too, right? Right. But, yeah, he, uh, I always thanked him. He always treated me, you know, I always said this about Gretzky. He treated everybody the same, and that's yes, what he did. him special. Yes, he did. It didn't matter coffee or curry were sitting over there. If Tommy and Jim were sitting over here, we were just as important. Yeah. He's a funny guy, too. He had a good sense of humor. There's a couple times we went into uh, Chicago one time, and, Hey, so a young guy a reporter comes in the room, the cameraman and everything. We're getting ready for practice, and you can tell the young guy's all fired up, right? He's going to interview Wayne Gretzky. He's got the hair all done and suit on and everything. And he goes over to Wayne. He says, Wayne, do you think we can start the interview now? And Wayne goes, what are you talking about? I'm not doing an interview here. And he just he did it for like 10 or 15 seconds. You can see the poor kid was crushed. And then Wayne goes over, puts, he puts his arm around and says, come on, let's get this done. Nice. Uh, he was funny. Yeah, definitely. So you ended up, you, you talked about the injury you had in Anaheim. What was that? Shoulder. So what happened against the Islanders, uh, remember David Volick? Oh, yeah. Um, so I went, I got on the ice, and um, it was my first game in Anaheim, um, sadly, and went over and I hit him, and my shoulder pad had moved, and he had put a stick up. And, yeah, just uh, blew the AC joint and all that. So tried to keep playing. I think I played five games after that, and then they did reconstructive surgery. Did the rehab stint, came back, and I still had major pain. And you know, when you're playing our type of role, you got to have your arms, right? Yeah. So they went in orthoscopically and cleaned it out and um, came back from the rehab stint on that. And I still had major pain. I couldn't reach out. It was just, it was really bothersome because I'm like, why don't I feel better? And that's when the doctor put his arm around me in the dressing room and goes, I hate to tell you this, but I can't do anything else and it's not going to get better. Oh. So... That was it. So how did you feel? We touched on it a while ago there. How did you feel at that point? Like, like kind of in shock? I mean, that was an injury for you. Well, when it hit me, it was an injury, right? When he basically told me it was done. This is where I got a hammer over the head. So my agent was Steve Bartlett. Oh, good guy too. And uh, great guy, yeah. Um, so he called me and he said, um, the Ducks are going to buy you out of your last year of your contract. He said, don't, don't go to the rink anymore. I'm like, go, don't go to the rink anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're you go clean your locker out. You're done. That's when it hit me. And I'm, oh my gosh, that it, I'm, I'm done. Right. right. So, wow. That was... So during this time, so now your career ends. Are you married at this time? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So the, the whole, like, are you doing any drugs at this point or is it just drinking? Oh no, I'm, I'm smoking dope and yeah. don't forget I've been out. I've been out, uh, you know, a better of a year and a half sure. because rehabbing, that's where I got addicted to opiates, right? Okay. Right. So, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing all kinds of things. All right, so let's go back now to when you're young. You talk about your brothers and the biker gangs and everything, too. Is that so your upbringing then was pretty rough? Is that accurate to say? It was. It was my, both of my parents were alcoholics. Um, my father worked in the oil rigs he was a chef in the oil rigs so he would go uh to work for two weeks and come home for two and a half days my mother had 10 kids i was the youngest of 10 she never drove a car um and her schedule you know, i love my mom you know sacred she was the best mom she knew how to be but her schedule seven days a week was 
she'd get up, have her coffee. At 11 o'clock, she'd have her cup of tea. And 12 noon, she would crack her first beer. And she would drink right through the day, sit at her window in the trailer. And her nightcap being uh, uh, an English girl uh, was a thing called a hot toddy. So she'd drink that um, as her nightcap and go to bed. So no money. You know, we, I started working when I was nine years old, delivering papers, became a timekeeper at the rink, which gave me good money. I was making $150 every two weeks back then with good pocket cash. Sure. So I had a bootlegger buying a uh, baby duck champagne. That was our drink of choice, our trailer park boys and bags of marijuana. Wow. That's how, how are you getting back and forth to hockey at that point? If your dad's not around or your mom's question. So thankfully. I was a good hockey player. I had hockey families that I thanked every one of them driving 30 minutes, 40 minutes to pick me up because we lived on the outskirts. And then the towns we played in, I played in a town that was about almost an hour away called Devon from the trailer park. We played at an Indian reserve called uh, Enoch. So two different locations, I would always get picked up. And driven home. My mom never had a driver's license, so you know. So uh, you're a, you're a good enough player that they wanted you on the team, so they didn't go out of the way to get you. Okay. Hundred percent. So any any time I I was you know back then, and it wasn't like you could play anywhere. There was no like in your community. So I had all these teams saying, "Hey, would you come here and play?" Like a long way away. Sure. Yeah, you know, I was a big goal scorer back then. So thankfully. Now, do you think people knew what you're doing, the drinking and the marijuana and everything? My my close friends did. Right. Like, you know, we're driving to high school. Tommy went to Spruce Grove High School. I'm in grade 10 and we're smoking big fat hash joints. Uh, you know, getting to school, long hair, right? The tight jeans, a leather jacket. That's kind of how I was. Sure. And, and, you know, just, and what happened, I did my own intervention. I said to my mother, I said, I want to quit high school take correspondence, which was homeschooling. I'll walk to the rink every day. We had arena by the trailer park and let me pursue my hockey. And ironically, my brother Frank was there and I, he, she's like, no way. Like my her older sons all quit school. He's like, you might as well let him do it because he's going to quit anyway. Mm-hmm. So she let me do it. He built me a little gym in the living room of the, of the uh, trailer. My coffee table was my bench press. <laughs> so that's how I made it work. And I walked every day over there and played shinny with the men. And uh, then I moved when I was 15. My dad took me down to Markham and the rest is. And so this whole time with your father, he's gone all the time working. So you really don't have a father figure at home. No, no. My brother, Frank, was my my idol. He was my brother. He was my mentor. Um, the guy that actually owned the arena, his name was Rod Matthews, because um, he'd always say, kid, why aren't you in school? So he really took a liking to me. So he really gave me some good fatherly, you know, love or, or you know, and, sure. and, and just stuff that I was missing, right? Because my dad was gone, had to make money. Yeah. And talk to your brothers now. Were they all bikers? Were they all? Or, not all of them. Three of them. Okay. Yeah. And what, I mean, obviously the tough life, fights, partying. I saw, I saw Tommy, I saw a lot of things. I saw guns. I saw some, some ugly things growing up as a young kid. Um that's that lifestyle. And, you know, um, one of my brothers got into a lot of trouble and kind of had a bounty on his head and 
um, was hiding out in my mom's trailer. I came back from hockey in the summer and I couldn't figure out, you know, curtains all closed. And then we found out later that there was a big debt that had to be paid off, a drug debt that, you know, he was, his life was in danger. So you find some of the stuff out later, but yeah, they, they were, you know, very loving brothers. They grew up in a tough world and, you know, the back then in that time, they, they were part of that Harley Davidson and, uh, that lifestyle. Well, are your parents both still alive? No, no, they're both passed away. And how about your brothers and sisters? Uh, I've lost all three brothers who are, who we've been talking about. I've lost, um, so that would be that. All my sisters are alive and one brother's still alive. You can. Oh. You've been through a lot as a kid at this point then. Oh, oh yeah. 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 So you're, you go through your playing career, you retire out in Anaheim, and now you've got to get off in the real world. What do you do? Uh, first thing I did was blew all my money. I got, I got insurance money from, um, the NHL and the PA, which was a lot of money back then. Um, and sadly between my ex-wife and I, we, you know, weren't, we just, we were uneducated. Right. I got, she, she was partying with you? No, no. She was a great mother. At this time we got three kids. Okay. Um, she was a wonderful mother till this day she is, uh, she knew I had issues. What was she going to do? Um, so what happens is we end up moving back with her parents in 1999 and I moved to Unionville, Ontario and basically had to get a job and I got a job. Um, we divorced, I'm going to say five years later and then, you know, took me to go to the NHL rehab and so get sober and. I'm in my interior sobriety. And once, you know, once you get through that, you know, nonsense and figure it out, then you can, like you and I, work hard. Yeah. Uh, so, so you went to the program, the NHLPA, NHL program, the assistance? Yeah. So it was a, it was a program in Merrifield, Ontario, um, where a lot of guys, you know, business guys, it's a, it's a rehab center. And so the NHL paid for it and uh, sent me there and saved my life. Because what I, I'll tell you this, Tom, what I learned 30 days at Newgate 180 was more education than I got my whole life. They, they go through a cycle of addiction, family, relationships, and love. And, you know, what you think you know, I had no idea what life was all about. Right. Which really, that was one thing when they say, what would you change? Being uneducated, uneducated as an, you know, a young adult. Yeah said it earlier that that bothered me and it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier this conversation we had about our playing career right it's it's fantastic that you got to follow your dream of playing the national hockey league but you didn't get man i would say way i didn't do any extra education i mean i went to truck driving school one time when i played for the Rangers. that's the only education i had but you see you really don't everybody else is learning more and their career is going up and up the normal person comes out of college they get a job they move up the ranks in the job and so by the time they get to the mid thirties when we retire, they're now really getting going in the career. We're just getting started in a whole new career. Yeah. Um, did you have, did you have a relapse? I mean, we talked about before, did you have a relapse one time? Yes, I did. So what happened was I've gone through my separation, um, living on my own and I got into a really healthy lifestyle. So I was going to the gym, um, every morning and I met this lady at the gym and we went out for dinner. And, uh, my drink of choice at that time was a, a, a Chardonnay called Kendall Jackson. So we're at the keg restaurant and this 
grill orders a nine ounce Kendall Jackson. And I just started to buzz and go, oh my gosh. So now you've been sober for how long at this point? Uh, we're talking probably be about six, seven months. Okay. <clears throat> so anyway, I said, I'll have a soda water. She looked at me and said, soda water, you're going to have a glass of wine or a drink with me. If we're going to, you know, she was being funny or anything's going to happen here later. So right away, I wasn't even thinking, broke my sobriety and had a nine ounce Chardonnay with her. And then I had another one. And uh, sadly, I was a three drink guy that on my third drink, I was phoning my crack dealer. So her and I went back to my home and uh, she left and I phoned my crack dealer and relapsed. Yeah. Did she know you had a problem at this point? Uh, not really. I talked a little bit about it, but we hadn't, we hadn't been dating much. Like we hadn't been, you know, like there's just, you know, it was just, uh, you know, Matt and Hey, let's go out. And so nothing was happening except, uh, this was my segue back into relapsing. And how long did you, before you got help again? So we are talking 2006. I finally about a year in yeah. And what happened was it was my son's birthday, November 17th. I was in Edmonton, my hometown. And I was on a, on a two-day wreck. And I was flying home because, you know, one of the things, Theo Fleury and, you know, you read their books and, you know, in sobriety, we understand each other. It's called surrendering. You can go to rehab a hundred times, Tom. Mm-hmm. You can have people tie you into all these things until you're ready to surrender. So I was on this flight coming home from Edmonton and calmly, I got home. For all my booze out, all my opens out, just, you know, not even worried that I was going to want them after because a drug addict always needs that stash. And that was the last day I used. And uh, it was a, it was just a quiet, surrendering time, peaceful. Well, why do you think you surrendered then? What made you surrender? Um, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was sick and tired of feeling the way I felt. I had three kids that depended on me. Now, well, you know, if we rolled this thing back, my three, you know, serious times of committing suicide were all after, you know, two, three day binges on awful drugs. And basically my reasoning was my kids don't deserve me. You know, why would they need a father like this? Right. So that was my, you know, my little idea of like, it's better just to check out because you're a loser, you're a monster. Um, and, and it's funny, I had this painting done of Gretzky and I around the Campbell Conference Trophy in 93 when we beat the Leafs. So what happened was I had two paintings done and it's a picture that's turned into a painting and I made one for him and actually took it down to Phoenix and delivered it to him. Yeah, cool. And one, he signed one to me. So I had it in, in my hallway outside my bedroom. I couldn't look at it. And I'd come out of my bedroom to go to the bathroom. Remember, I'm living on my own. I had my kids half the time, one week on, one week off. I couldn't look at this thing because I felt him going, what the hell? Sure. Like, you know, if you, anybody, like, what are you doing? So that was a haunting time for me. But yeah, it, uh, it was, uh, it was dark, dark, dark. So Jim, what helped you finally, um, finally kick at that point? What what, was there a person? Was there the program again? Like, what was it that made you finally Get a question. I'm going to say a little bit to do with my son's birthday on that flight home. I'm going to say a little bit to do with knowing I was going to die. Like I was going to either become homeless or I was going to die. Because 
Tommy, there was nights, and I am not exaggerating, that my heart was beating out of my chest, and I'm going, I'm going to die tonight. Like what, the, all the crack? For crack, booze, you know. You know, look at Derek Bugard and some of these guys who True. had heart attacks in their sleep. Derek was doing Oxycontin or codeine or whatever. Um, and I, I could move. Like I, I was, I, I was scared to move my leg because I said if I move my leg or or even move, my heart's gonna blow up. Whoa. Oh yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. Like it was so surreal. So when all you're going through that, it's like okay, this is the death sentence or. You get you get out of it, and it was just so calm and peaceful. And I go back to Theo's book when he said, "You know, I surrendered." You know, and uh, I surrendered, and it was just calm, and that was it. So three times you considered suicide. Yes, I did. Never acted on it. Didn't do anything that hurt yourself. Uh, the closest time, no, never hurt myself. The closest time, um, cowardly way to do it. But I was gonna. I went to a field in my pickup, and I was gonna do the old exhaust in the car and. Right. And, uh, and do it that way. And, uh, and obviously my three kids running through my head and, and it's funny because after a, a two day wreck, you know, you're, you're, you're depressed, you're a loser, you're like, you know, you're just a mess. And it's like, okay, I'm worthless. What's the timing? Like, when was the first time? Uh, first time would have been, oh, right before I got separated so it would have been probably Tommy 2000 um 2007 2008 maybe yeah. we're in there 2000 uh, do other people know that you're thinking that way uh no I didn't tell anybody not even my ex-wife no. so I didn't I didn't know it was one thing it was my own little deal that I was close I'm gonna tell you this I was close and you know, when you when you come out of a a shit storm of you know sure. a smoking crack and taking pills and it's an awful depression coming out of it. Like it's just like you 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 want to die because you feel so bad, and that's why this whole oxycontin thing, which I was addicted to for. Do you ever see uh, um, dope dope sick? Uh, what's it called with Michael Keaton? Uh, I haven't seen it. No. You got to watch it. It's the true story of Oxycontin. Over right. a half million people died. Sorry, over a half billion, 500,000 people died. When I took Oxycontin, I was getting it from three doctors because I had to have it. You have to have it because detoxing from that was the worst week of pain I went through. So that's that's just, you know, an awful, you got to keep taking it. So sure. Dope Sick. It's called Dope Sick. I recommend anybody... And everybody who knows somebody suffering from drug abuse, watch that. Uh, it's a great show. True story on pharma. Right. So during this period of time where you've had three times where you thought about suicide, still doing the Oxycontin and the drinking, everything else, you've still got your boys with you half the time, right? You're still taking yeah. care of them? Placing a daughter. So I get the week I would have them, no funny business. That oh, really? So you were able to control oh, yourself? Oh. oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I never put my kids at harm. Okay. I was a group of, so. The week not the week off, oh, it, was, it was nuts, right? So, I I buckled down for the week. I'd take them to school. See, being being addicted doesn't mean you have to do it every day, right? I took the pills every day because you got to keep taking the pills, but you can function on that. You know, get the cocaine and crack in there. No, no. Well, and you are you holding down a job at this time too? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. I had a, I was a manager uh, at a sports center making good money and they had no idea. You know, I, maybe I'm naive, but it's almost amazing that you were able to pull that off with your, your kids, with the job and, and do the stuff that you were doing. Drugs, drug, uh, <laughs> the addiction world, you can, you can fool a lot of people. Well, plan everything out. You plan when, you know, I knew when I was going to call my crack dealer. I, I like, it was just like a schedule, like going to work, right. you know, I barred shoeless Joe's. And as soon as I ordered my third drink, speed dial and away we go. So help me with you. So I get a lot of people now, so the stuff I'm doing with the mental health world, contacting me and talking about suicide. That yep. they're, they're, so what, like again, what gets you to the point? Like you, you talked about, I guess you thought your, your boys would be better off without you than you being alive in their world. Man, that's. My, I, yeah, my three kids, I'm going, they don't deserve this piece of, excuse my language, this yeah. piece of father. Like. Because, you know, what kind of, what kind of guy was I already? I split from their mother. I'm living on my own Ooh. and they deserve better. Any, any family or kid does deserve better. Right. But right. you didn't, you didn't think of reaching out to anybody else. You felt it's funny. My best friend at the time, his name was Richard. He sadly passed away, but he knew, he knew I had an issue and he's the one who called my intervention. So nine o'clock, he said, I need, I want to, I want to talk to you about a business opportunity. So I go to his house nine o'clock and what's ironic, Tommy, I was up all night using, I tried to blow off the meeting. Right. And I'm like, no, I got to go to work rich. You know, I'm, I'm going there. And, and he's like, no, this is really important. You need to come to my house. You got to come. So then I thought I'm not going to disappoint my best buddy. So I pulled up, got into his house and in his basement, my former in-laws, my ex-wife, uh, interventionist, well, my cousin. And I sat there and got the, you know, if you ever watched intervention, that's what happened. And I jumped in his pickup from that meeting and went straight to Merrickville, Newgate 180. So they jumped on you pretty good. Said, listen, this oh, way. Yeah. He called the intervention. He knew, he knew I was going to crash. Like he, right. he knew I was messed up. Right. So this was after so you'd met this girl, you, you'd gone to rehab. You met yeah. this girl, you had a year or now of partying again. And then this intervention happened. No. No, no, no. My, my, my sobriety came back from me. Intervention got me to Newgate. Okay. Right. Interve gotcha. I met the girl after coming out of. Okay. Gotcha. Right? <laughs> so Jim, after that second incident, you, then you just cold turkey on your own. No oh. rehab, nothing. And you know what the, the magic thing was, um, the seed that was planted in rehab, I had all the tools. Right. I still had that addiction because I got the Kendall Jackson. I got the pretty blonde. I got, I got, I got, I'm thinking. That's, that's pretty exciting stuff. That's the addiction bug that I was born with. Right. Mm -hmm. So once you beat it, you know, I said to my new wife the other day, uh, you know, she'll have the eye glass of wine and which there are people drinking in front of me. But I said, you know, it amazes me that who I was as a young kid till today, that in just over 15 years, I've never had a drink. Right. Like, and it's not to brag. It's just like, no, congrats on that, man. Yeah, there's something to brag about, right? Yeah, it's a huge call. You know what I mean? It was just like, it just kind of hit me because we were at a hotel, and in the hotel, they had all the booze bottles up top, so you can, it was free to drink. And I'm just like, man, before, I would have just smashed them, right? So, yeah. yeah. How, how's your uh, relationship with the kids now, Jim? Oh, awesome. Awesome. I, mean, I was just in Dallas visiting my daughter. She's down there working. Uh, 
but yeah, my son's a captain. He plays university hockey here in uh, in uh, Canada, so he's in his last year of university. Big right hand defenseman, and then my other boy is uh, was in for lacrosse, and he's now working in the real world. And great, great relationship. And obviously, they know they know about all this stuff. So we should no jokes. I talk. I talk to them. Um, they're they're, you know, inspired by the fact Good. that. You know, they their dad is alive and has beat this terrible. So one of the things I've learned about addiction, and it doesn't mean it happens all the time, but a lot of people believe that some addictions are um, go back to some kind of trauma when you're younger, like you know, early years before you're seven or eight years old. Do you believe that? I believe this. I grew up watching my parents drink every day, watching my brothers come over, like in our trailer. There could be 30 Harley Davidsons on a Saturday night parked out. We lived on a corner lot and the place would be packed with people partying. Right. So you sit and you watch and right. I started, you know, like I told you, doing my own thing behind the scenes. My mom had no idea. Um, we would go over to my buddy's place early. His mom would go to work. So we were get we were smoking a joint, drinking a sh uh, magnum of champagne before grade eight every morning it's for school. Right. That's because we could. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I believe that it was I was born with it because not all my brothers and sisters got into it. Like there are some that were bad and some that, you know, never, never partied, didn't drink a lot or whatever. But I believe it was a bug that I was planted in me and I fought it my whole life. Yeah. So well, close to 16 years now. So I'm in my 16th year. So next November 17th will be my 16th year of sobriety. Right. So now you and your wife, uh, so you're remarried. Yeah. And now uh, you guys have bought a junior team. Aurora Tigers, Junior A in the Ontario Junior Hockey League. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I, I see some of the videos you post there, all the practices and everything. So uh, if you actually get in there and coach or you're running the team? No, I don't coach Tommy. I run I run a, a mentoring um, um, spinoff of it. It's called JT Prospects. So what that is, is an eight-week training program in the summer. And then we play summer tournaments. A lot of the Tigers play in it. So it's a junior, you know, 16 to 20 year olds. Um, so I do that. Um, and I also do two mornings a week in JT prospects, which you would see on my Instagram. Sure. sure. Um, but, uh, then tagger stuff, I got a coach. You might remember, uh, Greg Johnson. Uh, yeah. He was 55. He played in Toronto, played yeah. Boston. He was a Boston second rounder, blonde kid. Yeah. So him and I played in the OHL together. He's my age and, uh, he's my head coach. Green guy. Cool. And, uh, so um, he uh, he would be a great guy for your podcast because what's ironic about him is he became a cop. And then what's really impressive is he was the sniper on the TAC team here in, in Ontario. Wow. You see American Sniper with Bradley Cooper. Yes. He was that guy. So he, I we sit in my office and I want to talk about his career more than I want to talk about hockey. Cool. There's so much knowledge there of what goes on behind the scenes yeah. in the world, right? So all the kids you're coaching and the parents, do they all know your background? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I do uh I do a presentation every summer. I have guest speakers come in. And then I do my own it's a PowerPoint that I travel around. Uh, you might see some of my other videos where I'll go talk to corporations, I'll talk to hockey teams, I go into rehab centers. It's called Career Killers. Right. So it's about an hour PowerPoint, picture story, picture story. So there's pictures of Gretzky and hockey, you know, my, my playing career 
Mm-hmm. And then there's pictures of the ugly scene of drug life and blowing your life up. And what I tell all the young hockey players now, one mistake, no mm-hmm. matter how good you are, one mistake can bury you. Yeah. And I and and the latest story is uh, is the uh, Henry Ruggs out in, in Los Angeles, the Raider there uh, that killed the girl, twenty two years old. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But but the thing was is here's a young guy, you know, twelve million dollars in the bank. He's the first rounder. He's got his life, good looking kid. And he should have been home because they had a big practice the next morning and he was on the strip and driving, you know, blacked out and killed a woman. And uh, he's going to spend most of his young life in prison now. Wow. So, like, so you're pretty clear that it is more the life you grew up with in the trailer. But then you also add the NHL life at that time where drinking's, I mean, it's, it's a culture of drinking beer, right? So you think at that point, though, you were already predisposed to being abusing alcohol and drugs. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, my first year, uh, my roommates, Grant Jennings, two Stanley Cups, yeah. and sure you would have played against Grant. So him and I, Western boys, we lived with a French kid, the useful Dwan. We're living in Binghamton, New York. We're making, I'll never forget it, every two weeks, $1,372. We thought we were rich. 25 <laughs> grand my right? Yeah. But, you know. Uh, uh, two four of uh, Miller Lite was four ninety nine. So you know we would go to practice, we would play our games, and in the afternoons, if you had a bug, we were down at the pool hall. There was a place in Binghamton called Funzies that we'd be there every afternoon playing pool, eating wings, and drinking beer. Right? Is that true? When you're in the middle of it, it just seems like okay, that's just what I'm supposed to be doing. This is the pro yes. hockey life. Yeah. You know. Then then do you remember Mark Taylor? Yeah, sure. Great leader. So we had uh, him and Daryl Evans, who you may have played with in L.A. So Daryl and Mark were our veterans in Binghamton. And they really tightened the screws of guys. You can't continue to do this. Mark was a true professional. So he had, you know, come down at the end of his career telling us, you can't be in the bar every day drinking and eating wings. Like, you're never going to get to the NHL. So you would get these messages of going, but damn, was it fun, right? Yeah. What else were we going to do in a in a dark, shady town for, you know, from Monday to Thursday, and then you play three games and three nights on on the weekend? And I think you kind of justify it too that you're you're being a good teammate, right? That's the guys are together, they're bonding. I remember when I first came up, uh, I went to New Haven to play uh, at the end of the season in my senior year. I went to get on the bus for the first road trip, and the guys threw me off the bus because I did not have my own cooler beer. Wow. Yeah. It, that was my real life. Now that was the minors, but then I got back to the NHL, and it's, you know, you know how it was. There's beer in the locker room, beer on the bus, beer on the planes. Yeah. It's just that it, I think they felt like, okay, that's how we're going to bond the guys together, and it actually did work, right? Because it was almost yeah. if you weren't one of those guys going and have a beer, then you were really part of the team. You think back about that, the yeah, the Edmonton Oilers, right? Those old stories where they go on the road for two weeks, but they would have to stop at the local bar before they went home to their families, even after being with all the guys for two weeks. So. Yeah. Difficult. But, you know, times have changed as we've yeah. and, uh, you know, that, that, uh, for many of us, that affected us. That yeah. affect, you know, there's a reason I only played 115 games in the NHL and was playing in pro hockey for 10 years. A lot of injuries to the way I played, but I'm going to, I was very serious. I worked out hard. Sure. But you can't function properly when yeah. you're using and abusing. Just, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So these kids you coach now, so inevitably, they must get into some trouble themselves, right? Or drinking and drugs. 
I, I'm gonna, I knock on wood, Tommy. I do a real good job doing my due diligence on the kid and the family before we pick them. Oh, okay. So I've had real limited problems with drugs and alcohol because you find the character right away. Yeah. And there's kids that I've asked to leave the program because I could see, I'll, I'll give you an example. I don't like vaping. I don't like smoking. I don't like chewing. All these things that can make these kids sick. We don't allow it on my hockey team. So I had a kid that would not stop vaping. I said, I can't allow you to do that because it's going to end up killing you. And I don't want all these young kids thinking it's all right that you can stand outside the ring vaping. Right. So I had to release them. Right. I just like, you got to go. I just, it's going to affect you. Right. Right. So just stuff like that. We keep it really clean and, yeah. um, you know. But people know if they're going to be part of that program, here's the rules. Right? Here's Except the rules. Yeah, you're not chewing, you're not, 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 nothing, you know, and parents want that. They want their young kids knowing that they're, you know, we don't allow hazing, you know, their, their teen party is a, at a, at a, is at a home, one of our veterans with parents there, and they have a meal. And if you're old enough to have a drink, you can have a drink. If a parent will allow his 16 or 17 year old to have a beer, I want written permission. Okay. Because there's no garbage. I don't want to be that owner. All of a sudden, some, you know, yeah. something bad happened. Totally, totally. And what are you running, right? Right. You talked about hazing. Uh, Tom and I had a conversation about hazing. And I think back when I was playing in college, and we did it all the time. And we really felt like that was something we should be doing, that that was part of the team. I think back about it now, it's like, what were we thinking about? It's just idiotic. Well, I don't know what your your initiation to pro was, but we were playing in Moncton, uh, Calgary's farm team there. And I got my tape taped to the table well, and it was not pretty and you could not get away with that today. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, you shouldn't. We were talking about Zidane Ochero when he was in Boston. I watched him get interviewed and they talked about hazing. And he was fantastic the way he spoke. He said, listen, if you're on the team, you're on the team. There'd be no hazing here and you go, all, we're all going to be treated equally. Now, as a young player, you need to remember to respect the older players, but we're not going to haze you. Yeah. It's just idiotic. I, I, I'm so embarrassed. That's one of the things in my life I look back at, like, what was I thinking about doing that to young players? I, I never got hazed myself. I don't know why. I don't know if somebody was scared of me or what it was, but well, part of it was when I went to college, I was the first year I was there was the first year they had a team. So, you know, there's nobody to haze us. So then as we moved along, the young kids are coming in and we're hazed. And I look back, I was like, oh, God. Just, but, you know, even the guys that got hazed, they, I think they felt like that was just part of the call. Even they didn't well, get did. hazed. Yeah. I did. I went along with it. You know, um, I watched it beforehand. Okay, this is going to be me whenever they I get the surprise, right? Right. But, yeah, it was, it was okay, I'm welcome to pro hockey. Yeah. Well, Jim, do you still go to have them play at all? Or are you in men's league? I do. No, 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 no. I'll tell you this. So I love to play still. I don't play any competitive hockey, Tom. Um, 124 documented fights in pro hockey and junior, everybody could keep these stats. Never lost a tooth. Hello. Playing in a old timers game with the Primo brothers, the Hanson brothers, in a place called Workworth, Ontario. And this guy lost his bounce and basically baseball batted me across the face. <laughs> Cleaned out my teeth, you know, blew up my lips, 35 stitches. And um, after that, I said, no more. I just, yeah. I've, had, I've had 12 surgeries, Tom. I've, you know, that was just butchery. And I said, no more. So what I do is I'll go out when I'm training and I'll poke around having fun with the guys in the scrimmage. Sure. So you've gone through all this stuff where you committed, uh, considered suicide three times. Yeah. 
Do you think you love yourself now? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, Tommy, I, I, I'm going to say this. I won't speak for you. I go to bed at night and I get up and as you know, an addiction, not you, but I didn't drink or do drugs. I, I went to bed healthy. I got up. I, I lived the best life I could. I yeah. did. And so when you live like that, it's like, okay, I put a full honest day's work in on myself. And that's why I'm so big in the fitness now. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's minus eight here and I did 15 K outside today. Nice. It, but it's just like, it's mental health. It's what I, who I need to be now. Right. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I love myself. I, I did a hockey clinic last night in a place in New Jersey. And uh, I have so much different now when I go to the clinic with the young kids. And that's just standing there having fun, maybe doing a little bit of drills. It's more talking to them about life lessons and motivation and th things they can drive and have dreams and don't let go of your dreams and everything. I left the rank feeling, man, I feel good about myself. You know, and, I, and that's a, that, that might be the best, or at least say different than the playing days, right? Because it was really exciting to play in the NHL. But was I as good a person as I am now? And I'd say, no, there's no way. I just, uh, so much better now than ever. So I'm, this is the same to you. And I'm really proud of you. I had not realized all the stuff you had gone through. But the way you talk about it now, how you want to help other people, uh, the way your kids admire you now for going through it all the time, you should be really proud of yourself. That's fantastic. I appreciate that, Tommy. And, and you know, we didn't touch much on the interventions I do now, driving people to rehab. And, and you talk about that. Like hockey, I love it's 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 Hockey's not a job. Hockey yeah. is our passion. Know, helping kids and all that but when i get a family that you can save a family right it's like scoring an nhl goal i only scored four and i remember all four times that like i just scored in the in in the league that i dreamed of playing in sure. and they were all indian rushes too weren't they no one was well, well okay what, remember your first one jim one was against the edmonton oilers and northlands coliseum there you go but anyway um just the the when you hear from the family and and just yeah. it's a beautiful feeling when you're helping people now so families will reach out to you and ask you to come and have an intervention for one of their family members oh yeah yeah i'm very oh, well. especially through covid i was i was uh very busy uh doing interventions um, taking people to rehab bringing them home right uh, working with them after the scenes you know i work with a little not a lot but enough people uh, to to this time of keeping them sound and, and inspired to live a healthy, clean life, right? Sure. Corey Hirsch, who I've become a good friend, and you know, Corey got through his own mental health issues. Yeah. He said to me one time, he said, you, you are facing a tsunami of mental health issues coming up. Yeah. Do you believe that? Oh, Corey's so bang on. Yeah. I, I admire him. My story is amazing. It's yeah. um, but what's going on in our in our world right now is very scary. Um, with people falling into addictions, not obvious is obvious the mental health, not wanting to work. You know, they, they, they here in Canada, they, you know, they're paying us to stay home. Yeah. Um, and it's created, it's created a lot of bad stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of family suffering. Well, listen, your story is a fantastic story. You fought through a lot. Um, Started when did you start smoking cigarettes like at 12 years old. Is that what it was? Oh, yeah, you're, you're smoking dope, smoking, you know, so it's just the chain, right? I mean, again, it's not, it's not funny, but it's just that I like to see like a 12 year old smoking cigarettes. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's not amazing, eh? And then like cool kids in the trailer park, like you know, I tell people, you know, I love I, I love the humor of the trailer park boys, but I can't, yeah. it's like that's us, like it's yeah. us.
Well, all right, brother. I'll be thinking about you every morning at 3.53 in the morning. Daily ritual. The daily thank grind. You, thank you for letting me come on again. Tom, I admire you. I, I think you're a great role model for so many people. You inspire me. And keep doing what you're doing. Because the older we get and the older we we can keep doing this, Yeah, there's a lot of people that that are looking and, and, and changing their lives because of people like you. And you. Yeah, there's a two-way street there, too. So Thanks. great to have you on again, brother. Good to see you. Thanks, Tommy, too, eh? Good to see you. Thanks, Jim. Hey, bye, Tom. See you, brother. Wow, what a, what a story that was, Tom. By all means, he shouldn't be with us after the addiction and the you know the fighting and the injuries and then the, the attempts. And, and here he is, a positive guy like yourself. Yeah, he's a really inspiring story. Again, I got to know him just a little bit at my last training camp and his first training camp with the Kings. And uh, when I got back in touch with him, he started telling me all the stuff he'd been through. And I was like, wow, you know, like be it's almost even start his life the way he did and fight through all that. Yeah. yeah. Trailer park and yeah. biker gangs at his house and yeah. addiction and his parents not being just a, an amazing story that yeah. he, you know, can say he's where he is now. He loves himself. He owns a, yeah. a junior team. It's that's really impressive. And helping other people too, right? He isn't just saving himself. He's Huge. Yeah. Driving people back forth. I mean, that's a, a, a successful second chapter. Yeah. If ever there was one. Totally. You know? Yeah. Great man. Yeah. Awesome. Great awesome. Man. All right, grasshoppers. Thank you for listening. We had a fantastic show. We'll see you next time.